Uh, you guys can go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 11. That's where we'll be this morning. Um, there are Bibles in the back on the window cells if you want to go grab one, or uh, the passage is also in the handouts and the entrance of the door here. If you've been with us for uh, this past season, we're going through the book of 1 Samuel as a church, and it tells the history uh, of ancient Israel. We're in the part of, of the story where the people want a king just like all the other nations. And up until this point, God had been their king, was their king, showing himself faithful time and time again, saving them, protecting them, and providing for them. But Israel rejected God as their king, and they wanted to be like all the other nations, with a human king over them. And God warns them that a human king would ultimately only have his own best interest in mind, right? sinful, marred by a lust for power and money, a human king would end up eventually oppressing them, leading them away from obedience to God and away from the flourishing life that God had in mind for them. But the people, they don't care. And they demanded of Samuel, who, who was the prophet and the last judge of Israel, they demanded of him, give us a king like all the other nations have. And so God says, okay, Give the people what they want. And this is where we're introduced to the character of Saul, a tall, handsome-looking guy who had all the outward appearances of a man fit to be king. Saul is anointed as king by God via Samuel. His anointing is then affirmed through a powerful spiritual encounter that he has. And then it's affirmed publicly through his coronation as well. And despite all of this, all of these affirmations, these encounters with God, these affirmations, Saul operates out of deep insecurities. If you weren't here for Jeff's message last week, I highly recommend that you go and watch that message on YouTube. You will be blessed by it. But chapter 10, uh, which Jeff preached on last Sunday, it left us on this awkward cliffhanger. If you look at the last verse of chapter 10, you'll notice that while most people were excited to have a new king and they were shouting, long live the king, there were some who did not think Saul was worthy of wearing this mantle. Chapter 10 ends with this verse and it says, but some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought no gifts for him. And this little question, it's really important to understand because the ability to save or deliver was at the heart of Israel's understanding of kingship. This is where we get their understanding of who the Messiah is gonna be, of what kings should look like, is the ability to save. How do you know whether a king is anointed? How do you know that he's worthy to be king? It's their ability to save. And so we might ask, who did Israel need saving from? Well, at that time, they felt pressure from two fronts. To the west, they had their greatest threat, the Philistines, which we'll hear about soon in, in future chapters. But in this chapter, they also have pressure from the east, from the Ammonites. And the Ammonites would love nothing more than to see all of Israel disgraced. They were led by a cruel and proud king. His name is Nahash, or Nahash in English which in Hebrew means snake, and remember that, because that's significant. His name means the snake. 
And this is where we pick up morning, uh, this morning in 1 Samuel 11. Now, I want you to pay close attention and notice how the gospel is foreshadowed in this chapter. It's pretty amazing. 1 Samuel 11. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Yabesh Gilead. And all the men of Yabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Yabesh said to him, Please give us seven days so we can send out messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to our rescue, we'll agree to your terms. We will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just when Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, he asked, what is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Yabesh had said. And when Saul heard their words, the spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Yabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Yabesh, they were elated. And they said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will surrender to you and you can do to us whatever you like. Wink, wink. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The people then said to Samuel, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us that we may put them to death. But Saul said, no one will be put to death today for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. And there they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord. And Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. Okay, let's take a look at what's happening in this chapter. We're going to be uh, borrowing the framework by an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann. And he divides this chapter into three parts, the problem, the intervention, and the resolution. So what is the problem? In verses one to four, the problem is that there does not seem to be a savior for Yabesh Gilead. Any, any Lord of the Rings fans in the room? Okay, we have more nerds than I thought, awesome. I was like, I might just be speaking to a small minority here, but it doesn't matter. If you are or not, you'll, 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 you'll get this. In the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the third movie called The Return of the King, or if you're a purist, it's the fourth book, um, there's a scenario similar to what is happening in 1 Samuel 11. 
The capital city of Gondor, Minas Tirith, is under siege by a dark force, uh, by the dark forces of Sauron. And if that means nothing to you, it's the bad guys, okay? The bad guys in the thousands are outside the city walls and no one can get in or out and the evil army far outnumbers the people who are in the city. There appears to be no one to save them. Their only hope of salvation is to send a message to an old ally, King Theoden. And he lives in a kingdom called Rohan. And the question they're all asking, is Rohan gonna come help us? Are they going to honor that ancient tie of being allies? Something very similar is going on in 1 Samuel 11, except, here's the big difference, the chances of receiving help are slim to none for Yabesh Gilead. Why? You see, this town, the town of Yabesh Gilead, actually betrayed the rest of Israel back in the book of Judges. If you want to do some joy reading, it's pretty gruesome, but read chapters, uh, Judges 19 through 21 this afternoon, and there are incredible parallels between this chapter and Judges 19 through 21. But in, that, in the book of Judges, there's a story that, of a great injustice that happened in Gibeah. That's the, that's the same place where Saul is from. And Israel sends out a message throughout the land calling all men to arms in order to bring justice and judgment to the evil men in Gibeah. And the Bible says all the men of Israel got together, united as one man against that city. Well, all except for one town showed up. Nobody from Yabesh Gilead responded to the call to arms. They didn't lift a finger to help out their own brothers. Now fast forward to where we are in the story now and guess who's in trouble? Now it's the town of Yabesh Gilead who is asking for help. Well, 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 how the tables have turned. Or in the wise words of Michael Scott, how the turntables. That memory is still incredibly fresh for Israel. Yabesh Gilead does not deserve saving, but it's their only hope, and so they plead with King Nahash, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel, and if no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. Now to us, this seems really dumb on Nahash's part. Why in the world would the enemy be so courteous to give this city seven days to go ask for help? And the answer is pride and shame. The ancient Near East was a pride and shame culture. That was the currency of the day. You had honor, that was your currency. If you did not have honor, you were at the bottom of the barrel. You had no bargaining chips for anything in life. And so nothing give Nahash more joy than to see his enemy ashamed and disgraced. If they surrender to him, the price is that Nahash gouges out their right eyes. Not only was this cruel, it brought humiliation and shame on the people. See, without their dominant right eye, I'm left-handed, so I'd be the odd one out, I guess. But without their dominant right eye, soldiers would lose their depth perception. They would lose their peripheral vision. They would be useless as warriors. But alive, and still have vision in one eye, to serve as slaves. 
Sure, they'd be alive, but they'd have no honor. They'd never be free, and they would always be subject to Nahash the snake. What's another form of stripping them of their honor? Let them cry for help, and let's watch them not get any help. That's behind Nahash's allowance here. He knows their history. He's like, they're not getting any help from anyone. Sure, let them cry for help. That just brings me even more joy. The problem is, Yabash Gilead needs a savior. And their hope is slim to none because they have no honor, they have not earned any allies, and they are a disgrace to the nation of Israel already. But maybe, just maybe by the grace of God, all hope is not lost. We move to part two, the intervention. Verse four, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. And just then, Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen and he asked, what is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Yabesh had said. Notice what Saul is doing, he's king. Israel has their first king, He's their first. They they don't have a job description for him. They don't have a throne for him to rule from. They don't have a court or a palace for him to be at. And so Saul went back to the work that he knew how to do, which was as a farmer. And when Saul heard their words, verse 6, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. This is the key verse of the whole chapter. It speaks of Saul's availability to God, his availability to be used by God. What follows verse six has very little or nothing to do with Saul's great military expertise or experience. He he didn't have any. What follows has nothing to do with his abilities as as a confident, strong, capable leader. Remember his insecurities just one chapter ago? No, what follows has everything to do with his availability to the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of God had come powerfully upon him, he burned with anger and he was driven to action. Righteous anger can be a good thing. God is known to deeply care and act when the poor and the weak and the vulnerable are treated unjustly or oppressed by the proud and the powerful. And that truth and these verses may certainly ring true for what's going on in the Ukraine and Russia today. Would we continue to pray for them, claiming those verses, inviting God to do his work? Verse seven, he took a pair of oxen He cut them into pieces and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. And then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they came out together as one. This practice of sending uh, cut up bloody pieces throughout the nation seems very foreign and gross to us, but it it was a very common Uh, tactic used in the ancient Near East to rally your troops. Again, you'll see that parallel in your afternoon reading of Judges 19 through 21. 
Note that the text says that the fear of the Lord is what drove the nation into action. Again, it wasn't Saul's great motivational speech. It wasn't because Saul was a popular TikTok influencer who had a million followers. It was the fear of the Lord. And in the West, we don't particularly like talking about fear as a good motivator. And while the, the Bible certainly does teach us not to fear other people, we are to have a healthy, reverent fear of God, who is the creator of the universe, a God who cannot be manipulated or used as a good luck charm. Israel learned that the hard way just a few chapters ago, if you remember. They tried to use the Ark of the Covenant as their good luck charm. They said, oh, we can manipulate God to give us victory. And it did not work. Israel learned that the hard way. It is the Spirit's empowering and the fear of the Lord that unites Israel as one. And they send the messengers back to Yabesh Gilead with a welcoming message. Salvation is on its way. Now shift gears back to the Lord of the Rings analogy. What happened to the city under siege in Gondor? It's an epic response. In the story, Sauron's evil army begins their attack on the city and eventually they break through the city gates. Most people in the city by this point have scattered. They're looking for shelter. And an evil king riding a serpent enters the city mocking Gandalf, who's the good wizard. I'll read this little snippet uh, from the book for you. Uh, Greg, if I could get the next slide there. There came a deadly laughter and the evil king says, Old fool, he said, this is my hour. Do you not know death when you see it? Die now and curse in vain. And with that, he lifted high his sword and flames ran down the blade. Now imagine Nahash with the same confidence and arrogance at the gates of Yabesh Gilead, saying, you fools, either die or live maimed, humiliated, and enslaved to me. We need to imagine this picture of impending doom and utter hopelessness. But then, in the Lord of the Rings, they hear distant horns blowing. And then suddenly, over the ridge, they see it. Rohan has come at last. Their one chance of salvation has arrived breathing new hope into the city and suddenly striking terror into the enemy. The help of Yabesh Gilead has come as well. Saul uses a common battle strategy, separating his forces into three groups and sending a surprise attack at different times from different angles. And the Bible says they decisively overthrew Nahash and the Ammonites. Salvation is promised and salvation has come, and the people of Yabesh Gilead are elated. They get a second chance at life. But who does salvation really come from? And why? This brings us to the third part, the resolution. Unlike Rohan and Gondor and the Lord of the Rings, salvation does not come to Yabesh Gilead because they've earned loyalty with their allies. No, they burnt that bridge a long time ago. Their salvation is not earned, nor is it deserved. Rather, salvation comes to them 
by the sheer grace of God. And a reader might notice, well, this is the first king and he delivers. And so does salvation come to them now because Israel now has a king like the other nations? No. I love how Bible commentator D.R. Davis says it. He says, salvation came not because Israel had a king, but because the king had God's spirit. Davis goes on to say this. He says, this is what God's spirit does. He takes this shy, hesitating farmer and he makes him function as a super judge. This is the difference that the Holy Spirit makes. Moreover, where does salvation come from? It comes from the town of Gibeah where Saul was farming, right? It comes from the town of Gibeah and places are important in the Old Testament. Gibeah had a terrible reputation as well. Again, read Judges 19 through 21. It's all in there. In an honor-shame culture, this town had zero honor. Who would have thought that anything good could ever come out of Gibeah? And yet it does. That's the difference that the Spirit makes. Israel cannot afford to miss this point. It is not the institution of kingship, but the power of the Spirit that brings deliverance. Verse 12, the people then said to Samuel, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us that we may put them to death. You remember the haters and the doubters at the end of chapter 10? And they ask, how can this fellow save us? Well, now Israel wants to punish them by execution to defend Saul's honor. Again, shame, honor, culture, it's, it's at the core of, of their society. And Paul, uh, sorry, Saul, Paul, Saul. Saul responds in verse 13, no one will be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Notice that Saul does not take credit for the victory. He rightly gives God the glory, recognizing that it was God who brought deliverance and salvation. Walter Brueggemann, he says this, it's a little dense, but steepen it for a little bit, the next slide there. This is not the voice of an established, proud, and self-seeking king. This is the voice, rather, of a judge of the old order who moves only by the energy and momentum of God. Saul knows that credit belongs to the spirit to which response must be made, but over which no control is exercised. Greg, can I get the next slide there, please? Verse 14, then Samuel said to the people in verse 14, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. This time, even the doubters and the haters acknowledge Saul as king and they are given a second chance at life. But what I think is important for us to note here is that this is not just a renewal of Saul's kingship. Rather, Israel comes before the Lord bringing offerings, renewing their allegiance to God, recognizing that God is the one who saves and God is the one who delivers. So as I wrap up and I move toward our invitation, let me ask you, where do you see yourself in this story? 
Do you maybe identify with the troublemakers who doubted that the king can save? Have you maybe written off God, thinking it's just rubbish and a fairy tale to believe in a God who has the ability to actually save you? Do you identify maybe in one way or another with the people of Yabesh Gilead? They were already a disgraced people because in their past, when they were called upon to help, they did nothing. They burnt their, relation, they burnt their relationship uh, bridges. They lost their honor. And so quite likely, they felt like complete failures defined by their past mistakes. Maybe some of us can relate. Have you burnt relational bridges? Has that led you to feel like a failure either as a spouse or a parent or a sibling or a friend? Have your decisions led you to lose credibility and honor? Do you feel defined by your past mistakes? Or another angle that you might relate to the people of Yabesh Gilead is through their, other, their utter sense of hopelessness. Nahash the snake, this character, he represents the serpent in the Bible that is otherwise known as Satan or the devil. And he also wishes nothing more than to lay siege on your life, on my life, making you feel trapped and hopeless without any real freedom. And sin does exactly that to us. That habitual sin that you can't seem to quit, it brings you so much shame. Maybe whether that be your envy or your hatred towards someone or your greed or your pride or your laziness or the opposite of that, an addiction to overworking, an addiction to shopping, to gossip, to substances, to porn. All of those things enslave us, they maim us, and they bring us shame and make us feel as though we will never be free from them. We see how broken we are and how weak we are against the siege of sin on our life. And we know that we need help. We know that we need a savior. But maybe like Yabesh Gilead, we are unsure if deliverance is actually for us. Maybe for that person. Maybe for that other person. But I'm, I'm a lost cause. Maybe not for me. And if that's you today and you feel like a failure or you feel defined by your mistakes or the things done to you or trapped in a pattern of sin, this is good news for you and for me, friends. There is a king who intervenes on our behalf and his name is Jesus. He promises salvation, forgiveness, redemption, restoration, and true freedom. You don't have to walk through the rest of your life maimed by your shame, enslaved to your sin, or defined by your mistakes. Jesus says this in John 10, 10. It's a verse that I keep coming back to, kind of like uh, Jeff keeps coming back to heart, soul, mind, strength. John 10, 10 is, is my life verse. It says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So who is your king? Is it the snake which comes only to steal your honor, your freedom, to kill your relationships, to destroy your hope? Or King Jesus who offers salvation and a life that is lived to its fullest measure?
And lastly, maybe you relate to the Saul character in this story. Maybe not because you're a king or a queen, but because you are anointed by God. If you're a Christian, you also are anointed by God. You too have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, the same spirit that came upon Saul. God has gifted Christians. You also have a calling on your life and can be radically changed and used powerfully by the Spirit of God in this world. And you might wonder, well, how do I do that? How do I get access to the Spirit's power and His work, His transformative work in my life? I still struggle with this. I still burnt that relationship. I'm still haunted by my past. How can the Spirit do something powerful in my life? Well, the Bible has many different ways of framing how we do that. But as commentators suggest in this story, if you just look at what was unique about Saul in this one story, it was his availability to God. That's it. Now, if you know the rest of the story, you know that sadly, this chapter may be the one time that Saul made himself available to God. It's a story of what could have been but this moment made all the difference. He was faithfully going about his regular work as a farmer. He wasn't trying to make up kingly duties for himself. He wasn't running around anxiously trying to do the work a king should do. No, he went about doing the work he knew how to do. And when a messenger arrived, the spirit prompted him and empowered him to respond. It was God's timing and Saul's availability. There's a partnership here. It's not our timing, God's timing, and our availability. How do we go about making ourselves available to the Spirit of God? Well, Jesus says in John chapter 15 that it's by abiding in him. The Apostle Paul says the same thing, but he reframes it slightly, and he says it's by keeping in step with the Spirit. And so how do we abide? How do we keep in step with the Spirit? I am learning this day by day, but it's by building our life schedules around the rhythms and habits that Jesus practiced. Sometimes they're called a rule of life or spiritual disciplines, but they're essentially spiritual habits that we learn to integrate into our daily, weekly, monthly yearly rhythms of life. There's not a specific set list, but there are certainly core ones that we see in the life of Jesus. It is to spend daily time in the word, in the Bible, studying his word, meditating on it, studying it in groups. It is to set aside quiet time to be with God in prayer. Maybe that's just five minutes for you, you're a parent with young kids, maybe you're not used to that practice, set aside five minutes in the morning. Maybe build that to 10 minutes, 15 minutes. It's practices of weekly Sabbath or a day of rest built into your week. Practices of both solitude, of retreating to be um, in silence and solitude and being part of Christian community. Practicing both fasting Right? We can fast um, on behalf of others. We can fast for the situation in Ukraine. 
And there are times it's a spiritual practice to feast and to celebrate together like they did at the end of this chapter. None of these practices are ends in and of themselves. They're not a magic formula to manipulate the spirit again. They are a means to an end and the end is simply to hang out with Jesus, to make yourself available to the spirit of God, to abide in Christ, to keep in step with the spirit. And so wherever you find yourself in that story today, there is an invitation for all of us, and that is to renew our allegiance to King Jesus. I think for Christians, this is a daily practice. Jesus taught his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer daily, and in that prayer, we renew our allegiance to God every day. Daily, we reorient ourselves to God and say, God, your kingdom come, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. We recognize God daily as the one who provides for us. We confess our sins daily, and daily we learn to repent, and daily we ask him to deliver us from evil. So let's renew our allegiance to King Jesus today. There's no good reason to wait to put it off. Amen. I have a... I know this went a little bit long, but I have a song that I want to um, just play and it, you can stay seated and I just invite you to listen to the song, to hear the words and maybe to use those words uh, as your own prayer um, and then we'll respond with a final song. to stand for our last song to worship.
is your word of benediction and blessing as we go into the week. Friends of Nelson Covenant Church, go forth into the world in peace. Be of good courage. Hold fast to what is good. Do not return evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the afflicted. Guard the dignity of all people. Love and serve the Lord. Rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Have a good Sunday.